Welcome to the Unconventional Path, Entrepreneurship and Innovation Stories and Ideas. Hi, I'm Balaam Usitz, a former three-time entrepreneur, venture capitalist, and now the recently retired David D. Ray Professor of Innovation and Entrepreneurship at Clarkson University. And from my office here in Münster, Germany, I'm Mike Wasserman, Professor of International Management at the Münster University of Applied Sciences. Sciences. I can say it. Well, Bela, as usual, I want to start by thanking our listeners for joining us, and uh, we hope you all enjoy listening to this as much as we enjoyed creating it. And second, just a reminder about our purpose with this podcast. Bella and I both like to learn from smart and interesting people about how the world is changing, how innovation and entrepreneurship are evolving, and overlay our observations and compare them with the lessons that we've each learned over three-plus decades as entrepreneurs, investors, managers, and professors. We thought it might be a cool experiment to do this a little more formally than just sitting around over a cup of coffee like we used to uh, and share this in a slightly more public way as a podcast. So to do this, we put together our network of interesting friends, former students, and business partners, along with some other people that we've met more recently to bring you interesting stories, ideas, and insights into innovation, entrepreneurship, and the people that take unconventional paths to find happiness at work and in life. Bela, tell us about this week's guest. Well, thanks, Mike. So this week's guest is Rich Honan. Uh, he's an attorney at Phillips Lytle in Albany, New York, uh, which is a large uh, national uh, legal firm uh, throughout the United States and Canada, I believe. And uh, Rich was actually a guest uh, on our podcast uh, in one of our very, I think, one of the first uh, 10 or so episodes where he and I discussed the notion of being an attorney and actually how entrepreneurial uh, being an attorney is, uh, and the entrepreneurial elements uh, of running your own practice and growing that practice and building it. Uh, well, it turns out that Rich, uh, besides being a wonderful attorney and uh, really focuses on venture capital uh, and small startups and helping small startups raise capital and, and all the agreements that are necessary to do those types of things and just general advice for them, uh, he also has a side business, uh, interestingly enough, and it's uh, horse racing. So he owns several racehorses. And being located here in upstate New York, uh, we have a beautiful uh, track up here called Saratoga Racetrack. And uh, for uh, six or seven weeks every year during the summer, uh, the place uh, explodes with uh, really uh, top-tier horses and races and uh, all the glitz and glamour that goes along with that. And uh, so I was able to talk to Rich uh, and uh, to talk to us about his uh, racehorsing business and sort of how that works and its uh, parallels to entrepreneurship and risk management, et cetera. So uh, before we dive into uh, the interview, uh, what is one thing that you think our listeners should be focused in on during the, uh, during the talk? Well, Bela, you know this about me. I'm actually not a gambler. I'm not, I don't do horses. I don't do poker. I don't go to Vegas, any of these things. I'm not risk averse, mind you, but I prefer contexts where I think I have an advantage and I decidedly have no advantage in places like casinos and horse tracks and card halls all over the world. I don't just quite have the, the horsepower for that, I think, uh, if you want me to use a bad pun. Uh, that said, I found this, this conversation extremely fascinating. Um, Little known fact, maybe to, to most people, but I spent my elementary school years living in Northville, Michigan, uh, which was just a few blocks from a horse, a harness track, a uh, horse racing track where they have the little buggies that sit behind the horse. Um, and, and I think it's still there and still operating. So I know a little about this, but from the business side, this is, you know, this is fascinating. And we talk an awful lot on this podcast about doing something you're passionate about and kind of doing something that makes you happy and satisfied. And, you know, Rich is really obviously from listening to this, you'll see passionate about horse racing. Uh, and I think this is an interesting story about he and his business partner uh, turned a hobby into a viable small business. Uh, so I think it's a story of risk, uh, of doing a deep dive and learning about a business and applying a methodology uh, to something that obviously Rich really enjoys greatly and turning into a viable business. Yeah, all good points, Mike. So uh, let's dive right into this uh, presentation that Rich made. So this was actually recorded live <clears throat> at an event that we do once a month here in Schenectady. Uh, it's called the New York Biz Lab uh, Clarkson Lunchtime Entrepreneurship Series. And uh, I have a co-host there, <clears throat> excuse me, Rick DeRico and I, and sometimes we interview guests and sometimes the guest 
uh, just make a presentation. In this particular case, uh, Rich just uh, gave a talk. And uh, so the sound quality uh, may not be up to snuff as it is with some of our guests where we record them through high-quality microphones uh, in a studio. Uh, but uh, So cut us some slack on that, folks. But let's get right into the presentation that Rich made about horse racing and owning horses. This is really sort of special for me because I get to introduce uh, not just a great person and a great lawyer, someone who has had a huge impact on the community here, but also someone who's a great friend. So uh, for me, this is really nice. Uh, I think most of you know uh, Rich Honan, and uh, let me just give you a little uh, indication of the impact that he and his law firms have had, uh, going back to Honan and Wood and, and now Phillips Lytle. Uh, Commerce Hub, Fortitech, eTransmedia, X-Ray Optical, Informs, those are all companies that uh, he has been involved with over the years, and those are some of the big key successes that we have heard about here in this region. Uh, so he is a fabulous person, uh, a great attorney, uh, runs a great practice here in Albany at Phillips Lytle, and he owns racehorses. So we're going to hear about how the racehorse business works. And uh, I think hopefully uh, you will garner some very interesting entrepreneurial elements to that business and managing risk uh, that are part of all business owners. So with that, Rich, come on. Thank you. Thank you, Bela. Thanks, Rick. And I know Tony's not here, but uh, thank you, Tony, for, uh, for this program, which today accepted is usually has great speakers and, and lots of good things to hear. And uh, thank you guys for everything you do for, for the community. So we really appreciate it. So horse racing, uh, how does it work and what does it teach us about entrepreneurialism and investing? Um, so big picture, horse racing is part of the agriculture industry. I, I really wanted to start off by saying agriculture is the third largest industry or something in New York State, and we actually found every other fact about it, but we can't figure out where it ranks. I do know there's 7 million acres of farms, and that New York is number two in apples and snap beans when it comes to agriculture, which made me pissed, so I had to go see who was number one. Anybody know? Wisconsin. Uh, uh, Washington for, no, uh, for beans, Wisconsin. Anyway, uh, uh, so horse racing is, is part of that, of that big umbrella of agriculture. It's about uh, a $3 billion a year industry in New York State. Uh, it's about 12 to 13,000 permanent employees and other, uh, what they call direct employees, and about another 7,000 indirect employees. And any of you uh, who have been in Saratoga, the town of Saratoga in the summer, you could obviously see the effect that horse racing has on you know, the surrounding businesses and, and things like that. So horse racing in uh, New York is run by uh, a number of agencies, but the people who run the tracks is Naira, the New York Racing Association. And they run the three big uh, horse racing tracks, Saratoga, Belmont, and Aqueduct. Um, and th the way it works is right now, as you know, the horses and everybody are here uh, are up at Saratoga. When Saratoga ends, everybody moves down to Belmont, uh, and they run there throughout the fall, and then they move to Aqueduct, and they run there throughout the winter, and then in the spring, back to Belmont, and then back to Saratoga. And when I say everybody, I mean all the horses, all the trainers, all the jockeys, all the people who work on the horses, the exercise riders, a lot of the people who serve the food and take the bets. It's just one big traveling circus Go goes all the way around. Um, and that's just, that's the track that they make. So when people say, oh, you own horses, where's your, where's your horse? Well, right now, my horse is in Saratoga, uh, along with the trainer. Um, we're lucky to be, Saratoga, obviously, the, the track is the jewel of, of Naira. Uh, it's, uh, you know, the most famous, it's a famous racetrack nationally, probably internationally. Uh, you probably know Saratoga started way back. The first race was August of 1863. And uh, which I think is pretty, I was looking at the mural back there. There's, the, the, there's a whole mural here of kind of the, you know, the, the historical. And I'm looking at the, the Civil War guys and the guy in the blue hat could have 
fought the Battle of Gettysburg, and then a month later could have been at Saratoga for the first race. That's how far back it goes. Um, and there's an entrepreneurial aspect to Saratoga because the guy who started it was a guy named John Morrissey. He was a corrupt Democratic politician. Um, I know. It's a, <laughs> a number of redundant terms. Uh, uh, but he had part of the Tammany Hall kind of uh, uh, Democratic Party. He, I think he was a congressman, congressman from New York City. He was also a, a, a prize fighter. He was like, you know, the, like the bare knuckle kind of prize fighter. He was a champion prize fighter. He was an entrepreneur, and he started, uh, among many things, he started a casino in Saratoga, where people from New York City and other places would come up and spend money at night. He later sold that casino to a guy named Thomas Canfield, and to this day, it's still, yes, it's still called the Canfield Casino, and it sits there, and you can still go to events there, sits there in Congress Park in, uh, in, in Saratoga. Um, but he needed something for his patrons to do during the day, and so they started a horse track. And he got together with his friend William Travers, if that's a name that sounds familiar to you. There's a, a race named after him. And his other friend, um, uh, August Delmont, there's a track named after him as well. And they started the Saratoga, basically the Saratoga Racing Association. The first, uh, the, the first time there were four days in the meet. And in those days, the horses would run, you, would ha you had to win heats. So the horses would run a mile and then that, and then they'd have another race where they'd run another mile, and then whoever won, like, two out of three won, okay? That's when horses were horses. Uh, and these days, it, it would be, it's odd for, you know, a, a long race is a mile and a half, and then you have, you know, six weeks off to, to rest after that. So that, that's, that's what goes on in Saratoga. Can I just maybe ask this? How many people have actually been to the track at Saratoga? Okay, so just about everybody. Um, so that's how it works. So... The horses at Saratoga, now obviously some of them cost millions of dollars, okay? You know, just bought by rich people and, you know, they're, you know, they're, they're as weanlings or as yearlings, uh, they're purchased for millions. But there's a lot of horses on the track at Saratoga where they were bought for between, say, 20000 20, and maybe $90,000, which is a lot of money, but, you know, much different from millions and millions. And those horses are owned by small partnerships uh, that will run, will, that form really the bulk of most of the ownership. And that's one of the, that's why they asked me to come speak here, because I'm, I'm in one of them. Um, and so my, my still best friend, uh, who uh, um, was my college roommate, um, and, uh, and when, the reason I say still best friend is when we, graduated from college, he was going to law school, but he couldn't write his, his entrance essay, so he asked me to write it for him, and then he said, why don't you write one too for yourself? So I did, we both got in, and then he left six weeks later uh, and stuck me with, with the apartment on Dana Avenue, and he went off to become a seven-figure-a-year CEO, and I remained a lawyer. But we, we remained friends, and we, and we used to go to the track every year, and and we, we'd watch the horses getting saddled in the paddock and said, wow, that, you know, one day we're going to own a horse. So about, uh, we were like 45 at some point, and I called them up and I said, you know, a lot of people our age are dead now. So it's, if we're going to do this, we've got to do it now. And so we got, and that's how we got, and that's how a lot of people get involved. We found a trainer. Our trainer is named Rick Schatzberg. These are the people who, obviously, they take care of the horses, they prepare them uh, for, for the track, and they also, importantly, help you buy the horse. Uh, and uh, th there's a lot of good ones. We found them through somebody we knew. And, uh, you know, one of the pieces of advice I always give my entrepreneurs when they're seeking investment, I, you know, I say, you know, if you have an investor and you can't stand to have a drink with them, they probably shouldn't be an investor. Okay? So we were able to have a drink with Rick. Uh, and uh, and he, we said, we're going to have a million questions. And he, and he said, fine. So... Uh, we found him, and we went and bought a horse, and uh, I think the first one cost in the neighborhood of, say, $40,000, okay? It was us and, and some other people. Uh, and most of these are formed as LLCs, by the way. The, the lawyer in me says, you know, I have to tell you that. Um, on the expense side, so the horse, as I said, the horse stays with the trainer uh, and, you know, throughout the circuit. On the expense side... Bottom line is we assume that a horse is going to cost about four grand a month. 
four grand a month per horse, you know, to keep it in, you know, hay and, you know, shoes and teeth. It's like kids, shoes and teeth and uh, um, some medications. Uh, and and um, obviously sometimes there's other expenses, but like say when we buy a horse, uh, and we'll go to our partners and say, we're looking for a horse for $40,000. We also escrow four months of, uh, of expenses, okay? If, if, the, if we can't produce after that, we'll, we'll usually sell the horse uh, or, you know, or move on. So th that's how it works, okay? So that's, that's the cost side. So you could buy a horse for as little as twenty dollars or $30,000, and obviously you could spend millions. Um, you could buy a horse for eighty or ninety thousand dollars. Some, sometimes you'll buy them at the sales. You've heard of the famous Fazig Tipton sales. There's the million dollar sales, but then there's the New York bred sales, and you could buy horses for seventy or eighty or ninety thousand dollars. And we've done that. There's other sale places throughout the country. Um, so that's how you spend money. The way you make money, hopefully, is that there's there's purses. Okay, so if you ever go to Saratoga and you say, well, this this race, there's a forty thousand dollar purse. Okay, what we do with that purse is the winning horse gets the winning owner gets sixty percent. Second place is twenty percent. Third place is ten percent. Fourth place is five percent. So fourth place, if you bet on the horse, you haven't made any money, but the owner is still making five percent of the purse. So fourth place is better than you know better than sixth. Fifth place gets uh, three three percent, and then the remaining horses all split the remaining two percent. So. Um, if it's a $40,000 race and you have your, your horse and you come, in, you come in third, which isn't bad. You know, there's times when you'll take third. If, if you really thought you were going to win, then you'll be disappointed. But to actually get a horse to the racetrack, have them get into the starting gate, complete the race, and then get a check afterwards is not bad. Horse comes in third, we get 10%, that's $4,000. 10% of that goes to the trainer, 10% of that goes to the jockey. And we're left with $3,200, which, you know, keeps the horse in hay for a month. You know, that, that's not an awful day for us. Um, what you might want to think about is, except for the big Breeders' Cup type races, so these jockeys, a lot of times, even if they win that race, what are they going to get, $2,400? It's not bad, okay? But there's races where they get a few hundred dollars. And these are, this is for, you know, a jockey weighs 110 pounds. They're riding a 1,500-pound horse up at 40 miles an hour with one hand, right? Because they're holding, holding the whip in the other among 10 other horses. Uh, sometimes it's raining, sometimes there's mud. You know, you've seen them, they have the, the, um, the goggles. They'll have five sets of goggles that they pull down as, as the goggles get filled with mud. They pull them down. You see them after the race, they have them all hanging. They used to throw them, but I guess they felt that was bad. Um, so these guys might get $400 for doing that. All right, so next time you talk about you know, overprivileged athletes, these guys are not. Um, so, so that's how. So that's how. Hopefully, you make money. Everybody with me so far? I guess it's not a. It's not a Q and A. Rick. <laughs> Where is Rick? Rick, is, did Rick already leave? Okay. Rick, you're, you're going to let me know when I run out of time, right? Awesome. Okay. Like two more minutes. Or, okay. Yeah. He's he's like on the phone. Uh, the the next thing is actually getting the horse in a race. So the whole idea is they try. There's somebody called the racing secretary. And they're the ones who make up the races. And the whole idea is you want to try and get horses of like abilities in the same race. You don't want a really good horse running against a lot of really bad horses. It's not fun. It's not great for the horses. It's, it's, you, you try and get it as equal as possible. And there's really only a few variables when you're riding a race. There's long races and short versus short races. Anything up to a mile is considered a sprint. Above a mile, it's considered a longer race. There's races on the... On the, uh, on the dirt, you know, the actual track. And then there's races on the turf, on the grass that's on the inside. There's races for, you know, there's boy horses and girl horses. So there's races for males and females. Uh, there's New York breads versus open company. So those are kind of the variables. Um, and then there's usually what you start with is how much the race is worth. So they, right now, there's a book that anybody can get that tells you what the next two weeks of races are going to be at Saratoga. So we'll have a horse and we'll say, okay, there's a race coming up next Thursday, and it is for, it's a seven furlong race for fillies and mares three years old, you know, a three-year-old female horse. Um, and as, and it, it pays $40,000, and it's for horses who have never won a race before. That's another big condition. Horses who have never won races, referred to as maidens, um, get special races. 
then once a horse wins, there's races where you say, well, you can't be in this race if you've won, won more than one race or more than two races or three. So those are the conditions. All makes sense so far. The thing that blows everybody away is the concept of claiming races. Does anybody, have you, first of all, does anybody know what they are, claiming races? Have you heard the, heard the phrase? Okay. Um, this sounds kind of nuts, okay, but a claiming race means that anybody, any owner or any uh, uh, trainer at the track, if a horse is in a claiming race, you can buy that horse. You can, you can walk into the racing office two minutes before the race, up to two minutes before the race, and say, I'm going to buy, I'm, I'm going to claim horse number three. And the, and the race is written with a claiming price. So next time you go, you know, and it says, you know, $45,000, fillies and mares or something, it'll, the first thing it'll say is claiming. It might say allowance, it might say stakes. Usually, most of the races in America are claiming races. It'll say claiming, and then it'll say the claiming price, $40,000. You enter your horse in that race. And you are taking the chance that anybody, any other owner, can buy that horse for $40,000, okay? Which is kind of weird. Uh, and so um, you'll find out, you, you make that decision two minutes before, which kind of gets us into the idea of, of first of all, does everybody get that, just, just by the way? Now, the idea is supposed to be that, uh, you know, Baylor put it really well. You don't have D1 athletes uh, competing against D3 athletes, okay? Because you could... When you read the program, you could say, oh, this horse cost $200,000 at the Saratoga sale last year, and now they're running the horse for $40,000. Um, or you say, this horse you know, has never won. I can understand why they're running it for $40,000. But a lot of times, what do you do with that $250,000 horse that suddenly is in a $40,000 claiming race? So you could, we could go buy it if we want, yeah. and we could say, wow, this is great. We can get a $250,000 horse for forty grand." And of course, then you start thinking, well, why would they do that? Why would somebody take, you know, lose $210,000 worth of value? Um, there's got to be something wrong with the horse. And now, nobody would run a horse that is unsound, okay? They, nobody knowingly does that. Um, but sometimes, you know, listen, the horse is going to be fine, but it's going to have a knee or a shoulder or an ankle or a stifle or, you know, you know a hock or whatever these parts of horses are. Uh, and um, and you, you know there's going to be an issue. So you say, yeah, I want to get rid of the horse. The problem is they know, the, the owner of that horse knows what we're thinking. And he or she might be thinking, you know what, I'm going to run this $250,000 horse in a $40,000 claiming race. I'm going to put bandages on the front and back legs of the horse. And so everybody thinks I'm trying to hide something. And who knows, maybe I pick up a nice $40,000 purse. I retain my horse and I got a quick win. And because we're thinking now, do you think he really <laughs> means to lose the horse? So that's how it goes. Is, is, the claim, is the price to buy the horse related to the size of the purse or no? Uh, it's usually close. Okay. It, it's usually, the question was, is the size of the purse and the size of the, the claim, they're, they're usually pretty close. Um, and, and there's some other rules which I won't get, yeah, from the pregnancy row. <laughs> I, I, I was sitting in a row, it was, it was me and two other, two pregnant, I shouldn't say two other, two pregnant women. I, I, I asked if I was, I was to see, Julie, you're in the wrong, you're in the wrong row. I'm making you uncomfortable. Okay, now go ahead. Um, when uh, someone claims a horse before the race and that horse were to win the race, the purse goes to pay. Good. So, the, did you hear the question? If, if the horse gets claimed, um, but the horse wins the race, who gets the purse? I should have said that. I, no, thanks for bringing that up. The original owner, the old owner, gets the purse. Okay? Um, so what you by the way, when you claim a horse, you're really hoping the horse comes in second. Because one, it means the horse probably doesn't suck. And two, it means that the horse has, has now not... Remember I said there were some races where if you, if you won two races, you can't be in that race? The horse has now not satisfied that condition. You could run that horse back in the, in the same kind of race. So the answer is the old owner gets the purse. Okay? It used to be, up until fairly recently, no matter what happened to the horse, you bought the horse. So tragically, if, you, if the horse broke down, you were the proud owner of this horse that you know, was no longer alive. Um, this is the new owner. Fortunately, they changed that rule. Um, it's, still pretty, it's still pretty tight. I think if you claim a horse and the horse has to be vanned off, it you know, actually has to be taken off, which doesn't always mean that 
the horse is going to die, by the way. A lot of times it just means being careful. You then have 30 minutes to have your vet look at the horse. And, yeah, I know, it's quick, right? Um, you have 30 minutes to decide whether you want to proceed with the claim. But that's a long answer to, to your question. Um, so the... the all right, there's something else I'm going to say, but I'll, I'll just add on to that. So... Um, so the claiming game is where most people buy their horses. And here's where we get into kind of the due diligence of it. So we, we found our trainer, Rick Schossberg, and we said, okay, we have $40,000, go get us a horse. You read the racing form, just like everybody else. You read the racing form, you say, oh, there's a, there's a claiming race next Tuesday. And you look through everything. You know, there's, there's this much inf information, right? The horse has probably run four times. And you say, yeah, you know, the horse looks pretty good. So you spend, you know, eight minutes reading that. Uh, then your trainer will try and find out something from the other trainer. Uh, say, hey, listen, I know I see you have a horse in for a tag. They call it in for a tag. Uh, you have a horse in for a tag. Anything I should know? You know, I have a good set of owners. You know, um, you know, trainers don't always love losing horses. Sometimes they're thrilled to get rid of the horse, but a lot of t you know they make money through horses. So there's that, and then there's the final part of the due diligence. And, and I think the lesson here is that you have to your due diligence has to fit your situation. You know, all my friends, and Dick, you and I, I think the last time we talked about this, I was like, oh, all you VC guys were like, oh, yeah, it's going to take me three months of due diligence. When we buy a sixty dollars or $80,000 horse, um, we're not, you're allowed to watch the horse walk from the barn to the paddock. You're not even allowed in the paddock. The paddock is that area in the middle where they saddle the horses. If you're going to claim a horse, you're not allowed in the paddock. So I'm standing, this just happened to us on Sunday. We, want, we tried to claim a horse. Um, I'm standing with my, with, with my trainer, and we're just standing by the fence, and first of all, he's on the phone, and finally my friend was like, hey Rick, do you mind getting off the phone and looking at the horse that we're trying to buy? And I swear, he went like this, so the, the fence is here, we're standing, he goes like this, okay, let's buy. <laughs> now sometimes he, he does that, and he says, no, we're not going to buy it. And then he explains, it's, it's really cool, because like every other expert in the world, they see things that you and I just don't see. You know, he'd be like, oh, the left hock was a little bit misshapen. I was like, what, where's the hock again? Because <laughs> on horses, everything, like what you think is a knee in a horse is actually their ankle. What you think is their ankle is actually their heel. Everything is like one, one joint off from what, from what you think it is. Um, but that's the amount of due diligence you do, which is the other lesson, by the way, for entrepreneurs is, you know, for us as entrepreneurs, we try and think, I know everything, I control everything. You really have to get good at delegating not only responsibility but delegating decision making. That's the hard part. You know, I've, you know, my, my friend, you know, has been a CEO forever. I've been in management positions in law firms for a long time. Um, I'm very comfortable with delegating. There are those who say I over delegate, uh, but um, you, you got to be comfortable with that yeah, because you know nothing about this. You know, he's, somebody points and says, "Well, that ankle's a little swollen." So you, that, that's kind of a lesson for entrepreneurs. Um, and then you go ahead and either you buy the horse or don't. One final thing on that, because it's Saratoga, everybody wants a horse. So this particular horse that we tried to buy, seven other owners and trainers tried to buy it. So there were eight claims on that horse. Um, so the way they resolve it, and this is like charmingly low tech, everybody goes into the racing office after the race, okay? And the horse did okay. I think, I think the horse came in second, actually. Like, it, the horse did exactly what everybody wanted it to do. It ran well, came in second. Um, and it was really cheap. It was like a $16,000, which is, you know, that's an inexpensive horse. And they basically, they write the names of each of the, of each of the claimants on a piece of paper, like on an index card. And they turn the card over and they put a number on it, okay? And then they put dice in a cup. And they shake the cup. And the, it's actually called a shake. So you'll say, oh, there was, you know, a, a three-way shake, a seven-way shake, and there was an eight-way shake. And they shake it, they go like that, it was number eight, they turned it over, and it was a gulo, I think it was. I'm, I'm trying to remember who the, the, uh, the owner and the trainer was. Um, and I remember Linda Rice was, like, sitting right next to me, and she was like, ah, damn it, you know, because it was just a horse you didn't get. And that's, that's how they resolve it. Um, the, other, the, trainers will also, the, the trainers will also usually put $100, they'll each put $100 into a pot, and then the winner gets gets that and the joke is that's you know to pay the vet bills for the horse um, so I mean that's that's the rudiments of it uh, the um, what I can tell you is um, 
like other things that you do in life, you know, if you're just doing it for the money, well, especially this, if you're just doing this for the money, don't do it, right? Um, I, we've actually been pretty lucky. Um, we put in money whenever, 15 years ago, and haven't had to put much more in. Um, because, you know, when you do win, you know, if you win a $60,000 race and, you know, 60% of that, you know, that buys a lot of hay. Um, and, and so we've had some luck and we've been really good at looking at, at, at listening to our trainer. Even now that, you know, we've been doing it for long enough that, you know, we don't ask as dumb questions like what's the difference between straw and hay, which I think was the first thing I asked him. And I think he almost gave us our money back. But, the, uh, you know, but we've, so we've done okay. Um, and, but you have, to, you have to like more than just the money, just like in the jobs that we all have right now. And the benefits are, you know, with your owner's card, you know, besides free parking, what you can do is go in the mornings and watch the horses work, work out. And has anybody ever done that, just gone to track of it? Yeah, okay, everybody has. So you've all seen it. You know, it's, it's amazing. You know, it, 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 for me, I'm at the stage now where that's actually more fun for me than going to the races um, because... Uh, for those of you who have, try and find a way of doing it. Find somebody and have them take you back. Yeah, Dick. Just a quick question. For most of the syndicates, how many horses do they own? Uh, the question was, for most syndicates, how many horses do they own? So we're, for, we're pretty small. Um, for a long time, we owned, like, you know, a, a lot of them own one or two horses, okay? And we call it a syndicate, but, you know, it's four friends who got together and said, yeah, you know, all right, $12,000 each. We'll take a shot. You know, it's kind of like owning restaurants. Everybody likes to say they own a horse. You know, I, yeah, yes, you know, I got a seat in the restaurant. Um, and, and so, but some of them, like we have five right now. Um, and, uh, and some of them, the really big ones, like West Point is probably the biggest one. Jeff, you know, you know those guys real well. Um, and, and by the way, the person here who knows more about all this than me is Jeff, is Jeff Schwartz, my, my law partner. So he will correct everything I've said after this in a, in a short follow-up. Um, the, uh, but like West Point has, you know, hundreds, you know, hundreds of, it, 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 that's, you know, they, it's just a different thing. But most of them, you know, we have probably, we probably have 20 people. I mean, some people are in for a thousand dollars, you know what I mean? Um, but anywhere from four to 20, let's say. Um, and that's why, by the way, if you ever go to the paddock in Saratoga and sometimes there's 400 people standing around a horse, that's why. Because there's 20 people and they've all brought, you know, their friend, you know, their, you know, and and their their mom and everything. So that's, you know, that's pretty cool. Um, the, yeah. How often can your horse run? Uh, uh, good question. The question was, how often can the horse run? If everything's good and everything's healthy and everything's sound, you might try and get your horse to. We like every three weeks, let's say. You know, uh, some there's some trainers who could run a horse every two weeks. Some, some horses could only run once, you know, once a month. We, it, pretty much every three weeks is what we look for. So at Saratoga, if it, like we had a horse that just did awful, but we had a horse that just ran on Sunday, and the good news is the horse, you know, he'll be able to run again you know, at Saratoga. Um, and that's, you know, that is one of the things. Uh, let me just finish the other part. Is, so you have to enjoy the other, the other stuff, the non-money stuff. So you know, go to the track in the morning. I, you know, I love it. If you, you, know, there's, you go to the track at 5 in the morning, there's 100 horses on the track, all working out at various speeds, you know, all being ridden by you know, these exercise riders who are like 80-pound women who are just muscling these horses around. And, you know, the steam's coming off the horses, and it's, it, it's, it's really cool. Um, so that's a fun thing to see. So you have to like that part of it. And I, I like still just going into the paddock and, you know, while they're saddling the horses, you know, talking to the jockeys and stuff. And, you know, walk, sometimes we walk the horse onto the track. Um, so the problem is the horses can't always run every three weeks. And that's the thing you've got to be ready for. And that, I think, is kind of the final. Um, is Rick giving me the sign yet? Okay. Oh. Um, one of the things I'll say is, you know, bad things happen. Not terrible things, but you know, they're, you know, the horses get hurt, and they get hurt in every way you could think. You know, we've had horses. I, I, we had a horse actually step on a rock like a pebble, and you know, came came up lame. We had a horse who what banged his head on the top of his stall, and I, just, I don't know. Do horses have concussions? But we we, we didn't feel comfortable. You know. Um, so you have that, and then you have you know lots of terrible things that could happen, and then they're just you know they're athletes like everything else. Plus they're tremendously inbred, right? So they're they're fragile. Plus if you ever look at the physics of 
you know, a, you know, a 1,400-pound horse running at 40 miles an hour, and, you know, the smallest bone in, in his body is basically the ankle, you know, the size mode or something like that. That's a lot of force. And a horse, you know, comes all the way off the ground when it runs. So a lot of bad things can happen. And also, they're also banging the hell out of each other when, if you ever watch, I mean, there's a lot of contact. I mean, they're just hitting each other, you know, kicking and stuff. Yeah. How's it decided what jockey rides what horse, and how many times a day can they ride? Uh, the question was, how do you decide what jockey... Uh, and how many times a day can they ride? The jockeys will ride every race if they can, okay? Um, and the, uh, which is weird. You'll see a guy win the Travers, you know, for $3 million. And then, he'll, you know, then he'll run, you know, a you know, $40,000 allowance race, you know, when everybody's walking home. Um, the, the jockeys are usually affiliated with, with trainers, you know. So, you know, uh, you know J.R. Velasquez may, may ride for Todd Pletcher. But if they're free, they will ride for you. And in fact... They're pretty entrepreneurial, too, because you'll be at the barn in the morning, and the jockeys will come around in a little cart and sometimes say, hey, you know, do you need anybody today? Do you, do you, you know? um, and sometimes, sometimes there's a conflict. We had, we had a, a jockey, I think it was JR, who was going to, JR Velasquez, great jockey. Uh, he was going to ride one of our horses, and then Pletcher, uh, Todd Pletcher, a, a much bigger outfit than us, entered a horse. So he said, I'm sorry, I have to, I have to, get, off, you know, I have to get off the horse, which... You know, you want to feel, you want to get mad about, but you really can't. Um, I will say, I think it was in that race, his horse reared up in the paddock. He got thrown off, didn't get hurt, but his horse got scratched. And I think we came in second. So, uh, yeah, question back there. What are, the, uh, what are the ongoing costs? Yeah, so the ongoing costs. Yeah, the, the four thousand a month will will do, you know feed and you know uh, and, and most most of the uh, you know there's a lot of medications. Um, they take you know they there's um, you know there's there's Lasix, which is the anticoagulant. You know that's one of the, the bad things. You know horses bleed when they run. All right, there's a lot of air going through going through their their nostrils and their lungs, and it actually causes blood. And if it gets really bad, the horse you know, the horse can't run. It doesn't kill them, but you know, imagine it's like you running being congested. So you take Lasix, um, or you give the horse Lasix, which is, is a coagulant and stops stops them from bleeding. That's one of the things. There's a bill right now in, in Congress where they're trying to, to make this all uniform. Uh, and uh, one of the, one of the questions is: Should we stop giving horses Lasix, for example, because um, maybe maybe you're giving them drugs that are making them kind of run beyond what they should be doing. So that's anyway. So Lasix is, is a big drug. They take naproxen. They actually take naproxen, like Aleve. Like I, I was once, I was at the barn once, and my back was hurting, and my trainer said, "Here, you want a pill?" And he gave me a literally, he gave me a horse pill of naproxen. <laughs> it was like this big. Um, and sometimes uh, there are, but you know, four grand a month takes care of most of it. Sometimes there's a procedure that uh, somebody will. First of all, you only, we almost always geld our horses. Um, sorry, but uh, you know, we don't have the million dollar horses. You know, it, it, and and uh, uh, one, it makes them easier to handle. But the other reason why you geld a horse is apparently they get too um, they get too muscular uh, if you don't. And and it and and the, having for them to have muscles up front actually can upset their gait. So at least that's what they say. Um, the, yeah. Uh, let me just, so every once in a while there's a big operation. And I will say one thing. Whenever one of our horses gets hurt, even if we know the horse is going to race again, we always pay for the operation. We, we get the horse, you know, stable. The horse could probably not run again, but they could still, you know, be a horse. Our trainer is the head of the New York State um, Retirement, uh, what's it called, New York State Retirement Association. I forget the name of it, Jeff. Uh, what? No, it's not the Thoroughbred Association. There's not like a Thoroughbred, it's a re, the Thoroughbred Retirement Association or something. And he, he's in charge of, of, who find like homes for these racehorses. So we, you know, we had a great horse that got hurt. Uh, spent fifteen thousand to you know on his operation, then gave it to a little girl on a farm in Kentucky, and you know, she sent us a picture of him with like you know ribbons in his name and stuff like that. I'm sorry, there's a question. Yeah, Ken. The question was, can you get insurance not for horses? Not not for a horse. You could, but it would be prohibitively expensive to insure a ninety thousand dollar horse. Okay, you insure the big horses, you know, um, and you could get in for the really big horses. You could also get insurance. You could actually get fertility insurance. Um, so if you have, you know, a stallion that ends up not being a stallion, um, you could actually insure against that. And one aside on that, the insurance. So the insurance will cover a horse that can't perform. 
couple of years ago, I don't know what year this was, Fusiachi Pegasus, a uh, Japanese horse, I think, that won the Kentucky Derby. And they syndicated it in Japan for millions of dollars. And the horse did not perform, did not, as they say, did not cover his mares, okay? And they went to get insured, and it turned out that the horse, he could perform, but he was not interested. So he was a, an equine leader in the LGBT community. And so he was fine, and they didn't get the insurance. Uh, and there's some really funny scenes of like a lot of Japanese guys in, in white lab coats trying to like figure this out. Um, so the answer is you don't insure horses at, at, you know, at our level. They're the really big horses, you, you might. Um, one, thing, one other thing I do want to say, uh, I, you know, I said a couple of things on the entrepreneurial side, uh, you, know, you know, listening to people and things like that. I, I really think one thing, I'll, 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 all right, go ahead. The biggest race we ever won was a couple of years ago in Saratoga, we won a, a race called the With Anticipation. It was a $200,000 race. Uh, and, it was, and we won it with a two-year-old filly who was in her second race. Somewhere, Alyssa, you might have seen this, somewhere, uh, hopefully not on YouTube, my, my friend, who, uh, my friend Michael, who, who my still best friend, uh, he's about 6'2", 6'3". Um, at the end of the, there's a, somebody was filming us watching the race, and at the end of it, Michael basically jumps and mounts me, okay? Uh, and and uh, so that, that was, yeah, that was pretty, and both my kids were there that day, too. So that's the other thing. When you actually, uh, when you win a race, I've, I've told people, winning a race is uh, being in the winner's circle at Saratoga with your kids. It's one of the very few experiences in life that is as good as you anticipated it to be. And it's, you know, it's just a remarkable experience. Now, sometimes you don't win. Most of the times you don't win. I think the lesson there is we as entrepreneurs, we think that our job is to control everything, to control the world. You know, we, we're going to control things. We're not going to let it, you know, we're, we're going to have everything planned out. You know, one thing this teaches you is, you know, these are horses. You can do everything right. You know, you do everything right, you, you find the right horse, you find the right rate, you train it the right way, you find the right race, you get a good draw on what, you know, what uh, uh, part, what, what's the word? What, po the, po thank you, what post, see Jeff? What post position you have, right? Um, you come around the final turn and you're perfectly positioned and the horse just doesn't fire. And, you know, you ask the jockey afterwards, the jockeys who are all, most of them are Hispanic and they're all bi and trilingual. Um, and you'll, although I've noticed when they lose, they're, they, they're a lot less fluent than, so like when they lose, you know, I'll be like, Louis, you know, Luis, what happened? Like, ah, she didn't want to, didn't want to run, you know, and you know, when they win, it's like, oh, the horse broke alertly from the first post and then moved up. Um, but it, my point is you do everything right and it just doesn't work. And, as, and, and so you start, you know, we think as entrepreneurs we're supposed to control everything. And it's a really good lesson that, you know, you have to have some humility in the face of the universe. Okay? The universe is what we live in. It's not what we control. Uh, and I think that's, that's one, of the, one of the best lessons I learned from that. I would, you know, pass it on to all of you. And with that, that's all, oh, that's all I got. Okay. Bela, that was great. So what are your key takeaways from this? You ready to go out and buy a horse? <laughs> uh, no, no. Like you, uh, I'm not risk averse, but uh, I, I've been to Vegas once. Uh, I put $20 in my pocket. I went down to the casinos and uh, within 15 minutes, the $20 was gone. And uh, I've been to the racetrack once. Betted on uh, again, put twenty dollars in my pocket, made some two dollar bets, and uh, by the end of the day, the money was gone. So um, I'm not a gambler either. However, I did, I do think there were some really interesting points. So one of the things Rich talked about, which has a real parallel in in entrepreneurship and starting your business, is all about managing risk. Right? There's some things you can control. Uh, there's some things you have influence over. And there's some things that are just totally independent of you. You have no ability to control them or influence them. And, and you have to have these in the right balance and you have to understand which one 
of these is which and what falls into these categories. Because there's no sense in lamenting over things that you are that are out of your control. Uh, whatever's going to happen is going to happen. So focus on the things that you do have control over. In Rich's case, it's which horses they buy, it's which trainer they use, it's the amount of money they spend, uh, which races they enter. Right? Those are the things they have some control over. Um, how that particular horse will do on a particular day, you know, because how it's feeling, uh, that they have less control over that. Um, so I thought that was sort of interesting. Uh, how about you, Mike? Yeah, I thought the amount of homework that was required to do this was was incredible. You know, I just kind of made the assumption that, okay, people just buy these things and then they give them to the trainer and the trainer does it and they just write checks and that's it. And it's not really viewed as a business. Um, that was always kind of my impression. But yeah, the amount of homework, the ability to see the value or the lack of value in a horse. I mean, the story he told about just looking at the horse and figuring out what was wrong with it just in a couple of seconds is a true expert skill. Um, I know people that can do this with cars, with art. Um, so, you know, over the last couple of decades, I've met people who really have this ability to look at something and see what's right or wrong with it in just a few seconds. And I've always had a ton of respect for this expertise. It's something that I'm clueless about, I think, in all aspects of life, but that's okay. Um, hang out with people smarter than you, right? That's my rule. Um, but I thought that was really, really amazing. Um, the ethics involved, you know, he talked about kind of making these decisions about when to run a horse or not. And um, and I think this is really important. Um, and then all these things behind the scenes, right? It took a ton of investment, not just of his money, but to go and to go to the track and to work, talk with the trainers and, you know, to deal with this kind of milieu that's behind the scenes um, at, at a race course, um, I think is, is, is pretty incredible. So there's a, the financial component of this, but then there's this also huge non-financial component that was not quite as evident to me. Um, so I think it's this blending of this two. And I think any business is the same. You can make stuff, but if you don't understand the context that your customers and your suppliers are in, if you're not mixing with them um, and getting to know them and figuring out how they best operate, you're not optimizing your business. So I thought this was a cool example of applying some really in interesting business principles to what essentially was a, started as a hobby and transformed it into an actual viable business. Yeah, I can't agree with you more, Mike. I think, and I think we've said this before that, you know, uh, each industry, there's some fundamentals that span across all businesses and all industries, but each industry has some subtleties uh, that you only understand after you spend some significant time in that industry. So if you're going to enter an industry and you don't have that deep knowledge of that industry, you got to do what Rich did. You got to go find some experts who, who can supplement your knowledge and your ability and give you that guidance uh, particularly in the early years. Uh, and it's interesting because that's, that's fundamentally the profession that Rich is in, right? He is an expert when it comes to negotiating, uh, bringing capital into your business, uh, business formation, uh, selling your business and the agreements necessary to, you know, have a larger company, buy your company, et cetera. So he does that day in and day out. He provides that expertise to others, because, you know, if you own a business, you probably haven't seen many merger and acquisition documents, but Rich has seen hundreds of them. So you hire an expert. Well, Rich is entering the racehorse business, and he applied that same principle uh, to himself. I got to go find some experts. So there's a good, valuable, fundamental entrepreneurial lesson there, I think. The, uh, the other thing I thought that was interesting was when he first talked about these claiming races. Um, and at, at first gush, you know, he, he talked about, well, up to, I think it was five minutes before a race, if your horse is entered in a claiming race, any trainer, uh, any owner can buy your horse for a predetermined amount of time. And when I first heard that, I said, this is crazy. But then as you think about it more, um, it, it makes a lot of sense. And I can understand why they had that in there. It's basically to keep the Division One horses from racing in the Division Three races and, uh, you know, always dominating them. So it's a way of sort of keeping the playing field a little more level. It's a way of sort of protecting the farm team, if you will, or the lower division horses. Let them develop and let them mature uh, and let them win a little bit money, a little bit of money, uh, so that they can make their way up into the, the bigger races. 
Um, so I thought those were some interesting points. Um, anything else you want to chat about here on this one, Mike? No, I mean, I thought, I thought one, well, two things is one is the, the thing about the, the, the jockeys, the training jockeys, right. Um, and that subculture was really interesting to me too. I thought jockeys just were these little people that wore these singlets. No singlets are what the wrestlers wear, but there's, I forget the name of the outfit, right? These funny little outfits. Silks. They're called the silks. Yeah. Singlet silks. I was close. My my brother was a my stepbrother was a wrestler and he used to wear a singlet. But uh, yeah, these silks and just and just did this thing. But I didn't realize that there was this whole kind of cultural thing. So that was interesting. But the last point that I'll make uh, that I thought was fantastic is quote that he told his friend. You know, a lot of guys our age are dead now, right? So let's do this. You know, and I think that that's kind of a, a, a you know I don't like to look at the glass half empty or glass full, but you know at our side of the. The age arc here, Bela, right? I mean, there's some truth in what he says, right? Is if you have this passion and you want to do something, act while you have the opportunity. Be thankful if you have the health and the financial wherewithal or access to capital and and, and take advantage of it. So I think this is a neat uh, story to think about, too, for those of us that are getting older. And if there's something in our mind that we kind of wanted to do, that uh, take, a, take a chance, you know, do it. Yeah, I agree, Mike. You know, uh, Somebody once said to me, you know, there's a thousand reasons not to do something and there's only four or five reasons to do something. Um, but, you know, you got to act. Uh, and if and if you don't have that bias for action, uh, you end up reflecting back on your life and saying, gee, I wish I should have, could have, would have uh, done something and, and you didn't do it. So, yeah, that was an interesting point. I'm glad you brought that up, Mike, because he, he did talk about that. It's like, OK, if we're going to do this, we got to do it now. Yep. Love it. So that's it for this week. Thanks for spending time with us. Uh, you want to wrap it up, Mike? Sure. Uh, yeah, we're absolutely thrilled that you joined us in our podcasting adventure for this week, and we hope that you found it interesting and thought-provoking. Uh, as usual, we have a couple of small requests. One is if you have questions about what we discussed today, suggestions about topics uh, or potential guests for down the road, please do get in touch with us. Our email is bela.and.mike at gmail.com. And yes, we will answer you. Uh, second, if you like what we're doing, please hit like or subscribe or whatever the positive feedback mechanism is on your podcast app of choice. Uh, and if you really want to uh, do us a solid, uh, consider writing us a quick, short review would be awesome. Uh, and of course, if you know other people that might find this interesting, please feel free to share us with them. We hope you enjoyed this episode of our podcast, and we look forward to having you join us again next week. This podcast is produced for Mike and I by our friends at Busy Media of Schenectady, New York. They can be found at busymedia.co.